0: a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table.
1: Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is the official talk show for the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or AI Arthritis for short. My name is Tiffany Westridge-Robertson. I am the CEO of the organization, and I'm also a person living with these diseases, specifically axial spondyloarthritis, or if we did a subcategory, non-radiographic, which I had to say because it's very relevant to this episode, but I'm not alone. I have three other patient co-host with me, and I'm going to turn it over and let them all say hello as well. Let's start with Carice, one of our recurring co-hosts.
2: Hi, everyone. Like Tiffany said, my name is Carice Hill. I have lived with spondyloarthritis since I was a teenager, but I was diagnosed in my twenties. I am a freelancer. I do all of the things related to spondyloarthritis. But for the purpose of this show, I attended ACR 2020 because of the Spondylitis Association of America. I love volunteering for that organization.
1: Wonderful. So speaking of the Spondylitis Association of America,
2: (laughs) we also have Rich. Hey, Rich.
3: Hi. Thanks for inviting me, and I'm so glad to be here. My name is Richard Howard. I work at the Spondylitis Association of America. I'm the Chief Mission Advancement Officer, which means I do things that advance the mission, whether it's research or advocacy, things along those special projects. And then I've also joined SAA when I was diagnosed, soon after I was diagnosed. So back in around 1990, 91, when I was about 30 years old, and I was diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis. And then over the years, I've also had (laughs) ulcerative colitis. I know it's the theme of our show. Um,
1: It is. That's why I laugh.
3: Uveitis. And... I've also have some psoriasis issues over the years. So. All right. Thanks again.
1: Great. And last but certainly not least, hey, Jennifer. Hi, I'm Jennifer
4: Walker. And my journey in the autoimmune community actually began with rheumatoid arthritis 10 years ago, soon followed by fibro. And I have a whole host of other things. Those close to me tend to say that I'm winning at autoimmune blackout bingo. So... <laughs> <laughs> which is, you know, an accomplishment, but not something you should be proud of, I guess. But I (laughs) did add axial spondyloarthritis to my range of issues about two years ago. And that was a diagnosis that took me like seven years to get there. So over the years, I've done advocacy for the autoimmune community, for fibro. I've worked with creaky joints quite a bit. But this is my first real foray the last couple of years into the spondylitis
1: community. So I'm really excited to be a part of the community. Well, we are certainly happy to have you here today. And so what are we doing here exactly? Why are we all united? We're going to talk today about a session. We're going to actually expand on a session. All of us attended, as, as Carice mentioned, the American College of Rheumatology, or the ACR, a scientific meeting that they host every year. And all of us, as people living with the diseases, and in the case of Rich and myself, also affiliated with leadership roles at a nonprofit organization, so kind of dual hats there. And as people living with spondyloarthritis, we all decided it was really important to attend a study group they had on nomenclature, which is sort of the naming and understanding the name as it relates to spondyloarthritis and what we as a community, a global community, need to consider moving forward as we evolve, or maybe don't evolve, I mean, that's part of the question today, (laughs) the name, further than it has. And I also wanted to add to that uh, just what Jennifer had said, was that I also was originally diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. That was in 2009. And, And Rich, I remember sitting at your office when I lived in Los Angeles, I came to the support group and I had the rheumatoid arthritis, but I kept saying everything you all are saying is exactly what I'm experiencing. <laughs> I remember Rich saying, I think you're a spondee. And boy, well, he was right. So, my diagnosis was actually changed in 2013 when non radiographic was a thing. Because prior to that, and the reason I wanted to preface this discussion today with a story is why I personally believe that understanding the continuum of the disease and the, and the names and the subcategories involved is important because my doctor only really recognized that there could be a problem because there were some things missing from that typical ankylosing spondylitis. I didn't have the HLA-B27 gene. I was female, and at the time, that wasn't as as well-known or at birth, I should say, as a female so that was not considered as much. And then also I had no radiographic damage. So AS had been put off the table a long time ago, and then it got reintroduced because of this new category that he'd emerged. So let's jump into this. I definitely do not want to dominate the conversation. I just wanted to introduce um, sort of why we're here. And I thought who would like to jump in and talk a little bit maybe about your experience with why this naming is so important to you or why this topic is so important to you?
4: So I can start because, sure. because I actually have rheumatoid arthritis and I do have non-radiographic, but it was a fight to get my doctor to even consider it. In fact, Carice (laughs) and I went over notes about what the actual diagnosis was, and we had discussed my symptoms. I'd been chasing back pain since two years into my RA diagnosis and kept being told that it wasn't what it was, that RA doesn't affect your lower back like that. I could physically feel inflammation up and down my spine, like my spine would heat up. And I had been tested. I didn't have the HLA gene either. And so I chased it, I believe, six or seven years before I actually got diagnosed. And it made sense. Then when I did get diagnosed, I was told it's not ankylosing spondylitis. It's this other thing here. And you can't tell people that you have that. (laughs) And so it was just very, I don't know, there was just so much confusion. And I was trying to understand it and even research and read it better. So
1: it, it was just a very difficult, difficult path for me. Interesting. And then Rich, you know, being a person living with these diseases and then also representing so many people all over the country that live with these, what is your take and your experience on the name and the evolution of ankylosing spondylitis into axial, into non-radiographic, et cetera? Uh,
3: You know, again, this is a great topic because well, first of all, I should say that I live with it and I work and I spend, this is my life. I mean, I spend every day on this, in the spondylitis world. So on one hand, I intellectualize the conversation, I think, because I'm thinking about building awareness and what does the name mean, have implications for building awareness? Does it hinder research? Does it hinder diagnosis? But as a patient, I'm thinking about, yeah, my diagnostic, I want to say about 17 years because I had had symptoms as a child, that it took me to get diagnosed. And I was, it was misdiagnosis and surgeries and things along the way. And I thought, so it, once you have the diagnosis and you know what it means, there's something to that. Like, okay, now I know what it is. Let me deal with the implications of that and move forward and manage my disease. Whereas, if, and you just feel like the rug is pulled out from under me sometimes, you know, it's like, wait, what is it today? And, and it's, I feel like This isn't the first time there's been a type of a name change offered, and I don't think this is going to be the last.
1: Thank you. And and Carice, let's hear your perspectives of the name and the the journey you've had and why naming and understanding what your disease means is important to you.
2: Yeah. So like Rich, I, I intellectualize all of this. I'm autistic, so I think about things in a different way than neurotypical people, which means I like dive deep into nomenclature. I have a textbook that's focused on spondylitis several years old now, so it's outdated already, but like reading about how some people wanted to call it Beckerou's disease, some people wanted to call it Marie Strumpel. Ankylosing spondylitis originated in 1904, but, it took 40 years, no, 50 years, 60 years until AS was identified as a separate disease from rheumatic or rheumatoid arthritis. I think about that in my own history where my dad had spondylitis and it was called ankylosing spondylitis. He was diagnosed in the early 60s when AS was just beginning to be recognized as a separate disease. And so I think about Him growing up as a teenager with this disease that's just barely getting exposure as like its own disease class. And then, you know, fast forward to decades later where his child has the same disease, but it's called something different. When I was diagnosed, it was ankylosing spondylitis. And now we're switching into language scientifically, at least, that is more... I don't want to say Latin. It's more appropriate for <laughs> the way the body's made and, and the inflammation impacting the body. So ankylosing spondylitis is no longer as accurate. The scientists and researchers say regarding the name and preferring you know, one over the other, I pay attention a lot to the patient communities on Facebook where people are just getting diagnosed and they come into these groups asking, well, my doctor says I have in our axial spondyloarthritis. Is that the same thing as ankylosing spondylitis? And I feel it's really important to get us all on the same page so that patients know what to call their own disease and know that this disease that they've been given the the name of is the same as the disease somebody else has been given the name of, even though they're different names. So I feel strongly about the whole community, you know, patients, researchers, rheumatologists coming together to figure out where we want to be as a community collectively.
1: Yeah, that's such a great transition and lead in into the crux of what we wanted to talk about here. So we started this by by mentioning that we all attended the ACR conference and we all attended a session that was a study group, essentially, for doctors, researchers, and people living with these diseases who were fortunate enough to, to have a seat at that table. It was an extremely interesting session and it was attended by, I know it's had over 200 people were tuning in. And so that's a lot of people trying to have a voice. We were very grateful to be there. And as people living with diseases have that seat at the table. But we also felt that we needed to say a little bit more <laughs> because we ran out of time and we had a lot more to say. There were a lot of questions that came up, and particularly about the evolution of the name. So we've sort of alluded to that as we've led up here in our descriptions, as Carice had said, which I think we should go in a little bit more because it's really, I thought was really interesting on the history, but ankylosing spondylitis is now transitioned into this axial spondyloarthritis. And then there is a continuum of non-radiographic into radiographic. And the question now being, do those names even make sense? Because they they were pointing out that not everyone has the inflammation of the spine. The inflammation itself is not the same as the inflammation you might see with like an, an arthritis component. So there's a lot of scientific questions on, does this name match? Which is something I found interesting. You said, Carice, how, you know, the, the naming changed because it was more fitting than rheumatoid arthritis, but we're still having questions. And I think the patients are being sort of the ones left in the dust here (laughs) because while everyone else is talking about changing it, we still have patients not even knowing what the first round of changes are. So that even becomes more confusing.
3: Well, I just want to tell before we move too far into this that when I go to ACRs, I go for a lot of reasons, but I always feel like it's not it's a professional organization. It's like you're going to an architect's, you know, and you're a, and you live in a home. So it's not our space per se to to dominate, I don't think. I feel invited there and I feel like my voice is valid, but I don't want to dominate. A conversation because it's not my professional organization it's a rheumatologist that they're there for CMEs and to and in the network with their professional organizations so I'm glad to be part of that but
1: no that's that's a great point because that's the, the other reason we wanted to sort of continue that conversation here where the a platform is appropriate which the whole talk show being the theme of bringing all voices to the table and making sure that the patient's perspectives, and experiences from all different people are heard. And we actually will continue and open that conversation up to all of you who are listening. And I do want to also mention, even if you don't have spondyloarthritis, this this conversation is relevant because we all have names of our diseases. And there are lots of movements in different disease areas to change the name, to evolve the name. I mean, this is, this is not unique to spondylitis or spondyloarthritis. So I think it's something that all people living with any of our diseases can really irrelevant and talk about. I
3: wanted to mention, I, I remember being in, the, in a seminar and one of the leading rheumatologist researchers had said, and this is where it really struck me, is that we know that people will have this disease, has this family disease, we used to call them undifferentiated spondyloarthritis, spondylitis, have this disease that don't fuse and will never fuse. And a lot of times their day-to-day Impact of the disease is worse than people who are refusing. So they're feeling it worse. And of course, more likely they're women. So here we have a disease that isn't being recognized. They're the last people that are being diagnosed and it's off the radar. So I think that's why it's so important that we push to have a non-rheographic axial spondyloarthritis diagnosis and in a way, a pathway, so there could be treatments for that disease, for, for this disease also.
1: Carice, did you want to expand on any of this to the
2: history parts? Yeah. And it's it's more recent history that I want to talk about, like since I was diagnosed. So I was diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis in 2013. At the time, if the language that we're sort of moving towards, like non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, axial spondyloarthritis. If that language was used in 2013, I would have been diagnosed with non-radiographic spondyloarthritis because I did not have evidence of damage yet. I do know. I was based almost solely off of family history and symptoms because my blood work never shows inflammation either. I got really lucky. One point I want to make is it is important to have these classifications to allow more people to get diagnosed so that they can begin treatment before damage occurs. And we are lucky, I may be jumping ahead here, we are lucky that the United States finally has a disease code for that, which means treatment. There are limited treatments available for non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, I will say, though, in that same vein, like when I've brought up this conversation to my own rheumatologist and said, hey, can we look into changing the name of my disease in my chart? He says, well, that's not going to change how we treat it. I have my own thoughts about that, but I want the accurate name of my disease in my chart. But at the same time, I have to think about, well, if my disease name changes in my chart, then my treatment options change too, because the code for my disease will change. So regarding history, like, I think it's important to align the name of the disease with the treatments available for the disease through the FDA. It's just such a complicated subject where before, you know, people with spondyloarthritis were lumped under the rheumatoid arthritis classification, which meant treatments that were for RA were used for our group. And a lot of them still are. So that's one point I want to make. The second point is related to RA. When I was diagnosed, there was still information online that suggested that spondyloarthritis was still a form of rheumatoid arthritis. So we're not even caught up to the 1960s yet in some ways <laughs> with information that patients are Googling. So I just, I wanna throw those into the mix because I think they're important for pointing out how complex this is, how rapidly things are changing in some areas, but also how, how much we need to catch up on in all forms, including, you know, patients, from patients to doctors to researchers.
3: In some ways, I feel like the research in spinalitis has been progressing at a different pace than it has been here. And I'm wondering if maybe they didn't have that opinion leader there, um, and it was recognized because ankylosing spinalitis is an, is an old disease. I mean, it's, some say it's ancient disease, thousands of years old. And I wonder if we'd be at a different place today, if not. And that's one of the reasons why, getting back to our topic today, is that how, why am the naming so important, because I don't want to have... Another stunt, you know. I want to. I want us to progress forward and not lock into a name that's gonna stunt our growth.
1: No, that's a great point, and and I also to expand on what Rich just said. They talked about this one doctor, which it is amazing the the power that this one person had. But they said that he specifically was very adamant that ankylosing spondylitis was a subset aversion of rheumatoid arthritis, and he wasn't going to budge, and essentially trained several of the key physicians that treated this disease. And and then I thought it was also very ironic and interesting that one of his chief interns ended up being key into moving back to separating it, So, so that in itself. But to expand also on what you said, Rich, I think we should ask some of those questions to NAS, to the National Axial Spondyloarthritis Society, and some of the other groups in Europe and other locations to get a little bit more of the history, because this was very centered on the United States. And as an organization, AR Arthritis, we are international. So I definitely think it would be interesting to get that perspective. But also, I agree that that Europe has been, in a sense much more progressive on this topic. And that was demonstrated even with my own experience because my rheumatologist at the time in 2013 just got back from ULAR and said, you have something what I just learned about and it's called non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis and you are textbook. And I went, what? I'm not textbook for anything. (laughs) So that was like, that was unheard of. But he heard it there and i know that the movement to evolve that non-radiographic diagnosis did start in europe before it came here so we we have and it does it does lend to the question how much did our history play into that i think that's really interesting
4: on another kind of more basic level i think if anybody who's listening who's like not used to some of the bigger terms because some of these things just it t- I would not even pronounce them. I read them first and I waited until I heard people that I knew pronounce them. So I knew what to, how to even correctly say these things, right? But I think the basics of why the naming, for me at least, is so important is because it seems like the majority of patients who are actually able to accept their disease make a solid life with and in spite of their diagnosis, they do so by learning and understanding as much as they possibly can about what is wrong with them. If they have a name for what is wrong, then they know they can learn what treatments to expect. They know what doctor to see. They know how to describe what is wrong with them. And they in full Form, they know how to advocate for themselves. I always feel like it's so much harder when you don't have any clue what's wrong with you, but you know something is wrong and you're constantly fighting and. You don't show up normal, your tests don't show up, you know, your tests don't show anything that they think they can see, anything like that. I feel like that's a much harder path. And so the one way that I feel like most patients feel like they can have a sense of control and a sense of hope is by naming
1: their disease, because that gives them all the power. That's how I felt. And again, we're going to tie this back to an episode that Carice and I did together about a year ago, actually, from today where we talked a little bit about this. And you know, at the end, one of the things, and this has come up in this conversation here too, is that there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect between what doctors believe and researchers. Well, researchers have a different platform. Researchers have to finite things because they, they that's part of research. But so let's kind of put researchers for a moment to the side and just talk doctor patient, because that's the one that's having the conversation anyway, right? So, <laughs> so it seems that the doctor perspective, in summary, is that axial spondyloarthritis, which is now considered the continuum, and then you have non-radiographic, and then you have radiographic, which also is synonymous with ankylosing spondylitis. And the the consensus for doctors seems to be, it doesn't really matter because it's all treated the same and it should just be under one umbrella. So it's more of this lumping that we heard a lot about in, in the study. And something that Jennifer, you mentioned and and and, and I also have talked about For me, I want to understand where I am in that continuum. So one of the big themes that was in this actual conversation, the question that was put forth to the study group was how do we educate patients? We started having a lot to say, but then the session expired. (laughs) So we're going to continue that here. And I'd like to kind of delve into that question right now. So we can have that continued conversation. I can say for myself, understanding that what I have can feel similar to what the rest of the people have, regardless of the diagnosis, is important because that means I feel I can talk to everybody and I have that broader support system. But as a person, I also want to know where I am in the disease progression. And I want to know the percentages and what will happen if it develops to this. And I think I have a right to know that and i and it and it sort of bothered me a little bit in the conversation that i wasn't able to express as a person living with the diseases i don't necessarily want it that lumped together it shouldn't be assumed that i want that left out
2: i was actually taking notes and wrote how do we explain to patients as a like thing i wanted to bring up which is exactly where we are i think the tendency in Medical practitioner community is to simplify things for patients, especially people who are newly diagnosed. And I think that's really important. For me, I want to know everything I can. And that means I want to know the current name. You know, I want to know what I'm supposed to call my condition at the same time. I wanna bring up the point that the four of us are all professionals in our community. We're the bridge between like researchers and medical practitioners and the rest of the patient community. And so we're gonna be swayed a different way, I think, than the larger community that's not an advocate-based thing. And I'm gonna go back to, I guess I'm the one who's gonna say, this is so complex over and over again. Because like, we, we have to juggle like, okay, what is scientifically accurate and what do we think this should be called and what what do patients actually want who aren't at the table with us right now? I mean, I hear initial absolute pushback in our community of patients who aren't advocates themselves, who are still learning just like we are, but they're a little behind where we are because they don't attend... ACR. ACR is really only beginning to open up to patients, which is it's great. But it's it's just taking into account, like, how do we get on the same page where the people who are most impacted by the disease are helping move the disease forward? And that includes nomenclature. I'll just say, I think it's really important that... We listen to the whole patient community, but at the same time that an organization or leadership effort takes that step into saying, we're going to call it this, this is what we're going to call it, and focus really intentionally on educating about why, regardless of which direction we go, because the patient community can't necessarily take that step of leading the change without knowing all the information alongside that, along with the pushback I hear, it's usually around like, well, it was hard enough to teach my mom how to say ankylosing spondylitis. And now you want to make it a longer name and like four words instead of two, like what, what the heck is going on here? And so it's partly due to awareness where we're still teaching people what the heck this disease is we don't have a ton of disease funding we don't we're not a household name and now we're like changing the name all of a sudden to something that's even harder so i'm just trying to bring in like more of the patient experience that we aren't necessarily as connected to as people who are shoulder to shoulder with the scientists and researchers all the time
3: so we reached out an essay to our members and said here's the current thinking this is the direction the clinicians and the researchers are moving towards. This is what they do in Europe. And we got pretty strong feedback that, no, we're, we're comfortable where we're at. <laughs> My disease is called ankylosing spondylitis. I mean, if you live long enough, it's a seven decade, eight day, decade long disease. So it's not something you've lived with for a long time. But that was the other discussion in the meeting. I think you're so right. It was because they said, well, something that starts axial spondy, isn't that redundant? We're talking about the axial.
1: Yeah. Somebody right? did ask that. And
3: and some people say, well, if you, how do you explain to patients who don't have inflammation that they have this disease that's around arthritis? Because, and one of the names was spondyloarthropathy, which is a joint tissue issue, but it's not specifically inflammation. So that might be more accurate for those patients. So how do you explain to patients, this is what you have, but don't, don't spend too much time on the name of this disease because it's it's a little bit different for you. It's, it's tricky.
1: Well, that was really where I think the The main issue with this conversation started in the study group, because remember, as it was brought up before, the primary audience for this session was rheumatologists and then researchers, you know, it is kind of a a secondary and the whole misunderstanding under they had a, they had a slide in the beginning and and they sort of preface this by, well, The problem we have is with that name, does it match what the patient is experiencing? Does it physically match? And you've got the inflammatory back pain. There might not be visual inflammation. You have the itis at the end, which is, you know, another form of past inflammation. And so they're really caught up on the actual scientific name as it relates to the disease itself.
3: I love that it is a family name. I like that idea. Like, so here's our community. We're spon- And whatever it is, it is, you know, we could call it the Howard's, but we can go with spondyloarthritis if we'd like. And so that's our family name. But if you don't have the individual's name, you don't know who you're talking about. You don't know, you know, you don't know if, are you, do you have gut it? Do you have colitis with it? Do you have, are you not fusing? Will you fuse one day? So I feel like we still need that. I don't want that to get lost. I don't know. Grace probably has some ideas.
2: I I agree with you. I was just going to be funny and bring up how I would, I guess, joke about how long names can get if you're really specific about all of the different parts of your specific disease under that umbrella can get. So this is before spondyloarthropathy was changed to spondyloarthritis. So I would call it unknown HLA-B27 status, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthropathy with peripheral involvement. <laughs> and, you know, every every day that might change, but it's sort of a, a testament to like, it is helpful, it's validating to have all of the names that identify you. You know, I'm Carice, but I'm also Carice Hill. I'm Carice Hill, a disability activist. Like these are Identities that you can't remove from me and help explain me, so that I can find more people who are just like me who get exactly what it's like to be me. At the same time, I like being part of that family, like Richard was saying, of the whole umbrella group of spondyloarthritis. So, yeah, I mean, what other diseases are there like this? I mean, you have cancer as an umbrella group. You have arthritis as an umbrella group. There are hundreds and hundreds of versions of those diseases. So we're not different, except that our names are just super long and super hard to say.
4: I guess the one thing that I think about is that, to be honest, why was there such a deviation? Why is there such a need to nitpick for every specific manifestation of the disease? Like with rheumatoid arthritis you have rheumatoid arthritis, right? But like if you go to the doctor or if you look at your, I could pull up my chart and say, okay, like with gastric involvement, right? But it's still rheumatoid arthritis. So I don't understand why the need to nitpick to death all the little pieces, why can't it just be an umbrella name with subversions, right? Because that would make it the most easy and the most understandable. It just makes it harder because, I mean, I've been on the spondylitis website, right? I was first trying to find out what was going on with me and what that meant. But even the definitions that we have right now are confusing, you know, because these names like, okay, you have this piece with this piece with this piece. Okay. So then I have to look up another term to figure out if that applies to me. As a patient, that's not a great place to start. By the time I got diagnosed with axial spondyloarthritis, by the time I got diagnosed with that, that was a relief because somebody finally acknowledged and I finally had a name for what was wrong with me, but it was still also very difficult. And it takes time for patients to move into the world where they better understand who they are, what's going on with their
1: bodies and what we call it. Something that you said before, Jennifer, you were talking about, well, why can't it just have a name and then there's these subsets or there's these bullets that come after it? And that really ties back to the session that we were watching and the coding. And we're not going to get into all of the details. That's very sophisticated. And we want to focus really on on patient Perspectives and what we need for education and what our opinions are. But we do need to mention it. When we're talking about disease codes, those are not supposed to be used for diagnostics or to diagnose, it's to classify in order to match you with the right treatments. And some of the things that were suggested in the session were why can't we just have like tier one, tier two, or, you know, level one, level two, level three underneath that umbrella? And I think, Rich, you may have even mentioned something in there whether it was the chat or verbally, oh, so then non-radiographic could be phase one or maybe undifferentiated is, is phase one. And that, and that you know becomes phase two when it's non-radiographic. So I don't know if anyone wanted to sort of expand on that. Go ahead, Rich.
3: So there's billing codes, there's these ICD-10 codes, and these are international coding systems. And the, it is used for research, but really it's also used for billing. It's also used for insurance. So it, it really has real life ramifications for us so the new codes you have like it's it's one thing it's axial spondyloarthritis and that's the first level and think of a drop down menu then they click off all the all the types of things and it's important to have all the different types so they could do the different research so i think i mean you just made the best argument to have this family
1: i forgot to mention earlier and rich this has a little bit to do with your organization my organization organizations that conduct research I know it is very important to us. We have a couple projects coming up here over the the next year and spondyloarthritis is one of the four diseases that are going to be included and Chris you're familiar with it because it's act 2, the A community team part 2 you were part of part one. And the whole premise of the project is to start to create this typical, atypical, and subgroup population so that we can better understand not just treatment, but quality of life and many other things that are important to our perspectives and experiences as patients. And if a patient says, well, I have ankylosing spondylitis, automatically in today's definition, that's telling us as an organization, you have radiographic damage. Right. And so we've got to remember that when we're talking about research in any capacity, because that kind of thing will matter. So maybe it's up to us to take the onus to ask, you know, oh, do you have radiographic damage? Because we have to assume that not everybody knows. Right. That 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 is what is associated now. Or like Carissa said, it's in your file. It's in your, you know, it's your diagnosis. You were diagnosed with that 10 years ago. That's what you have. And and it just, it means something different now. Go ahead, Rich, you wanna add to that.
2: It's,
3: it's again, so important what you're saying to, patients need to know what they have. We, we were doing, you're talking about doing research. We were doing research on non-aryographic axial spondyloarthritis. So we did focus groups and then we did survey, but people didn't know they had non, I mean, we really had to dive down because they heard they had this or this and, but, Nothing's fusing in my body. So it's
1: that in itself to
3: know how can you participate in research if you don't know what you have, you know, you're not part of the conversation.
1: Exactly. So this is something that we're actually thinking about right now, because we're going to start recruiting for this part two project. We have to think, How do we ask where a patient is in the process? Because we don't know what they're going to say they have. And so that's just one reason why I think that just understanding the continuum or saying the umbrella term like Jennifer brought up and was in the session and then having phase one, phase two, phase three, or however the community or the world decides that we need to do this. The bottom line is there needs to be more communication about it. We do need to come back and ask people living with the diseases. We need to ask the rheumatologist. We need to invite more people to the table because there's more conversation that has to happen in order to solve this problem. I think we're all in agreement with that.
2: I was just thinking of a plain language way to say what you just said regarding research. And like, we don't know what people are going to say they have, and we have to figure out how to you know digest that and put it into research. It's like going to a party and there's someone there who has like 10 different nicknames and you know them as this nickname and other people know them as that nickname. And you think you're going to this party with like 20 people, but it ends up being like five people (laughs) because there's, you know, there's one person there who has all these different nicknames and you all know that person, but you all know them by a different name. And it's, it's that like realization that this is all the same person or the same disease. And we just have to figure out how to know that we know this person as the same thing. <laughs> That's a good point.
4: Yeah. yeah. For me, I think that when people are considering the discussion of what it should be named, it's a bunch of intellectual people who are researchers and doctors and scientists, and they're all kind of throwing it back around to each other. But it's, it is very clinical. Like Carrie said, they look at us as a list of symptoms and what do we treat that with and how do we do that? But we are patients and we live with it. So beyond and above anything else, the conversation needs to start with patients
1: being heard. But at the end of the day, this is all about patients who live with the disease. hmm And we talked a little bit about what they mentioned were the misunderstandings and the purpose of why it's being explored to change the name again, which as a side note, what you just mentioned, Rich, with the coding and the the ICD international coding for version 11, which is supposed to start in European countries in 2021 this year. And it, it takes a while to get it adapted over to the United States, which is sort of in the theme of what we mentioned earlier with, with one side of the world sort of being in front. But One of the things that with coding that Rich just mentioned that's so important and one of the pros that was mentioned in this session and why it is important to understand there is a non-radiographic version, and we just recently got a code for it in the United States, is based on treatments and understanding that a patient like myself, who was originally diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis... The medication I was on was tested in clinical trials and indicated for RA, was not tested in Spondy, nor did it, you know, so it did not prove that it could address the Spondy symptoms. And I was getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And it wasn't until I got the actual diagnosis, thank goodness, that it existed, even though we didn't have a code at the time, but the doctor knew it was non-radiographic, he Prescribed me a medication that was indicated for ankylosing spondylitis to see if it was going to do anything. And it just so happened it was also in clinical trials for non radiographic axial at the time. And it made the biggest difference in the world. So, understanding, and one of the doctors actually said this as well towards the end of the session, he said, You know, now that I know more about the variants of this disease as a continuum, I would prescribe an an IL, you know, whatever it is, an IL-17 or what have you based on the presentation and the progression of a spondyloarthritis Disease, whereas before I wouldn't have had that. So it's it just shows you what the importance of the research component also, and making sure that we're differentiated. But that turns us back to the whole purpose of of the big questions we need to answer here as we start a, to kind of wrap into our our finale here of conversation. We've already covered our opinions on names and the history of names and the evolution of names, but now we really need to go into what is important for patients to know when that doctor has that conversation with us, with the newly diagnosed, and with the existing diagnosis. What, what do you want to know? Because they specifically asked that question. At the end, they talked about, we, we really need to decide how we're going to educate our patients. How do we do that? Well, what are your ideas? We're all people living with these diseases? What, what are the answers?
4: I mean, I think that they should have like a pamphlet that has a list of the different variations of the disease, right? With like a diagram that talks about like the most commonly presented symptoms. But I say that because I'm a visual person, right? And then also because they are, even though I wish it was under one big family name, they are actually broken down into individual diagnoses. So it would be important to have that, the different diagnoses and like what that actually involves and how it would manifest, right? And if they have the proper terms, then they can find
1: out more correct information about it. So let me, just a a follow-up question to that. So, in, in terms of this, this session, which is about, you know, how do we tell, part of it was, do we tell patients it's non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, or do we just say it's axial spondyloarthritis? That was sort of the, one of the ending questions that they, they were asking. What do you think, as a person who has the diagnosis of non-radiographic, would it have been easier just to hear axial spondyloarthritis?
4: Yeah, I think it would have been easier to hear that, but I would have also wanted to know like the differentiation between it. So if there was a pamphlet, right, again, these are all the different versions or (laughs) manifestations of axial spondyloarthritis and have them point out to me, like, here's where you are. So that at the time I could look at as much as I want, but if I go back later, I can actually use it to help me find information.
2: I think that would be the most helpful. I'm I'm trying to go back like 10 years, you know, when I'm like in the doctor office convincing the rheumatologist that I have this disease and like, you know, validate me with this diagnosis. I think what would have been really helpful would have been to go bird's eye view down to ground level. So say, you know, you have X, you know, specific disease, whether it's non-radiographic axial spa or radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, and then say, you know, that fits into this family of diseases. Axial spondyloarthritis is the family and you have this version, you know, this disease that falls under that umbrella group and it's this disease because you don't yet have radiographic damage yet or, you know, whatever the appropriate definition would be. And then say, Here's some resources to plain language education about it. So that, you know, I've just thrown, you know, 17 syllables at you and you've only managed to write it down. So let me give you where to go from here after you leave this office. Well, related to the topic,
3: I found the Spinal Life Association by, um, by a brochure in an office, in the doctor's office. And we have all our brochures. We love them are electronic, they're free downloads on our site. You know, there's pros and cons of having. I think a family name. Again, I think it's a great idea to have a family name. I think it would have been easier. You know, when I was first diagnosed, it was a surprise, and I went through all those uh, dealing with something like that. And I just would have gone along with whatever the doctor said. I wouldn't have looked it up. I didn't look it up until I was having other issues and complications. So I, I just would have just accepted what they said. But I think I almost think it's naive in 2021 that you can have a disconnect between what you tell the patient and what's in their files or what's in their coding. It has such implications that you have to you have to be straight with your patient too.
1: That really leads to the subcategory here of this question or part B, I guess if you will. Oh, a subcategory. That's like the continuum of what we're talking about. Just, <laughs> just, very well, good, very good. I didn't plan that, but hey. So my sub question is well, we're talking here about, you know, what we think is is a patient. And then we have we can't forget that what we're hearing is that doctors really just lump it together. I don't think it's as important to them as far as you know maybe why they think it should be one name versus another and it was funny i was in a panel for hcp live with three of the rheumatologists that were actually in the session <laughs> for for this and we talked about that when we were cuz the discussion was should it be one bridge or should it be differentiated and they used the example well, as rheumatologists, we never we never say seronegative rheumatoid arthritis. It's just rheumatoid arthritis. And I laughed and I said, well, as patients, we do. <laughs> I, I, everyone I know says, oh, I have seronegative rheumatoid arthritis. So I found that really fascinating that they wrote it off like, well, rheumatoid arthritis is just rheumatoid arthritis. But not to us. It, mm-hmm. it was different. So I just thought that was worthy of pointing out because i think what we're identifying is the real disconnect when it comes right down to it is if doctors are going to decide how to educate their patients in the name they that there has to be some sort of middle ground on what we expect to hear and what we want Out of it, and it can't just be what seems convenient in a doctor's perspective. I I just think that's that's what this all really comes down to. And another thing that I found interesting, that kind of coincides with this from the presentation, was they had surveyed the rheumatologist before the session and asked if a patient presents as non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis today, would you give that diagnosis? And 50% said they would still diagnose it as ankylosing spondylitis. So that tells me we're talking about moving forward with the name when 50% of rheumatologists are still, you know, just saying, well, it's the same thing. So Mm -hmm. we got to get on the same page here. (laughs) You know, we just have to get on the same page. That's where the big disconnect is, in my opinion. And I think that's where we need to focus reaching out to our population, reaching out to people living with these diseases and talk about that. But I also think we need to talk to rheumatologists. I think we need to invite them to the table. We need to hear more about their perspectives, but also what they think about ours. That's what hasn't been done yet. We've heard sort of what they think. We're saying kind of what we think. Now they need to hear what we think and then get their reaction to what we think. I feel like that's the next step. Yeah.
2: Tiffany, while you're speaking, I was writing about how I've heard so many stories from friends, from people I don't know in the community and in other medical communities who've been told they have something and then they look at their chart and it says completely different things. And that creates a whole lot of confusion. And so if a doctor is diagnosing us with ankylosing spondylitis and then we check our chart for some different reason and we see what is non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis? That is evidence of the doctor and patient not being on the same page from the start. And I'll preface this next part with saying, like, doctors are taught to be clinical. They look at the blood results, they look at the x-rays, and then they decide treatment. And it's less sort of part of the biopsychosocial aspect of engaging with your patients because people with specialized treatment diseases have long-term relationships with their doctors and it's not just the like visit to the pcp and you have an infection and they prescribe antibiotics and then it's done this is a person you're going to see every three to six months to a year for the rest of your life arguably so i I preface this with that because it can come across sounding harsh i think about community development work related to this where the best way to do community development work is to listen to those most impacted and provide the resources and let them guide you. I see so much evidence just across the board of doctors deciding what patients need to hear. And I think that that can really impact treatment outcomes, honestly, when patients aren't given enough information and then find out later. And it becomes this argument within a long-term relationship that you have to overcome. So trying to think of the least damage approach, if you will, where doctors have a lot of control in how a patient learns to navigate their disease. And I just think it's really important for us to talk together as You know, researchers, scientists, as rheumatologists, as ophthalmologists, you know, as physical therapists and as patients
1: meet together at the same table and have these important discussions. Agreed. That's gotta be the next step. Rich, you wanted to add something.
3: Yeah, I hate to take away that. I think that was a great final thought. So don't (laughs) don't, so don't so keep that in your mind. But but I'm I'm thinking about like when you're talking about community, I wonder like so important the patient relationship, the shared decision between the patient and the physician, you know, my doctor and myself, right? But who's not in the room? I mean, when we are talking about coding, we're talking about what's the name of the disease. Is it, do we need the FDA in, in the room? Do we need insurance people in the room? Because are they are they advocating for something completely different? Do we need researchers in the room and rheumatologists? So And pharma, they've got a skin in the game too, you know, what they're doing and what they're trying to treat. So I think for something as important to this We as people living in the disease community, we need to have our voices raised and know what's important to us. But I think in the end, I think we really need to be at the table with the people making decisions because if FDA says you need a diagnosis for this part of the disease, it's going to have its own name and it's going to have its own set of treatments.
1: Yeah. I I think you just nailed it. You just nailed it right on the head, um, Rich, is as we're kind of summarizing where we got to in this conversation. And again, what this whole entire talk show is about is bringing patient voices and then adding other stakeholder voices. So it's always a process. So the next logical step would be to bring more voices and and maybe there's a stepping stone. Maybe the next step is bringing rheumatologists to speak with us about that. You know, listen to what we're saying. What do you think now? Does that change anything? Then bringing them more and more. Like you said, Rich, we've got to have more people in something that there was talked about in this um, session was then bringing patient advocacy organizations together to also help with that education and the advocacy or the you know component on what those next steps would be. And I know you and I obviously with our organizations are in a good position to help facilitate that. So I feel like we have a good plan in motion. So I think we are wrapping it up. What a great conversation. I, I just want to personally thank each one of you for coming and sitting at the table. And and we want to thank all of you out there who are listening because it is very, very important. I mean, the premise of this show and everything we do as an organization at AI Arthritis is to make sure that all experiences and all perspectives of all stakeholders are heard and with the patients being at the forefront. And that's why we all here are the co-hosts of, and we're, as, as equals and always lead the show. And saying that, we are going to be posting on various social media platforms. You can find AI AR Arthritis at IFAI Arthritis. I'll I'll have Rich mention where you can find them as well. And we'll be sharing some posts. And, and, and hopefully, Jennifer and Carice will also be helping us out on that. They'll tell you where you can find them. So, we are going to be asking you some very specific questions. What is it that you as a person living with these diseases, what would you like to hear? Like think back if you, if it's been a while since diagnosis, Would it be important for you to know an umbrella term or would you like to know a little bit more detail? And if you're a person who's been living with them for a while, same question. How detailed would you like things to be? Also, we'd like your opinions on what type of education should be out there. So doctors are starting to talk and decide how they should be educating patients and let's weigh in. Let's give them some feedback. If you are not a person living with these diseases, but you are another stakeholder, a rheumatologist, a researcher, FDA, EMA, government, pharmaceutical. Did I miss anyone, Rich? (laughs) We mentioned anybody who is part of this conversation and has a voice in the naming and what is the result of any evolution of name. We want to hear from you, too. You can email us at podcast at AIarthritis.org also weigh in on those social media conversations. We'd love to hear from you. I'm gonna go around and give a personal thanks to each one of these lovely people who have joined us today. And if you could tell us maybe any closing thoughts and where we can find you, that would be fantastic. Let's start with Jennifer. So I guess I wanna encourage
4: anyone out there and just remind you that no matter what you're going through, you can do it, reach out for support around you and that you are your own best advocate. And beyond that, I just wanted to thank AI Arthritis and the Spondylitis Association, two really great organizations that I've gotten a chance to get to know. And I appreciate the opportunity to speak my voice here today. And you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under Unexpected Advocate. I have also a a site where I create patient art to describe the patient experience. So you can check that out at jwalkerart.com. Dot .com again that's jwalkerart.com take a look and Caris who is
2: actually on this episode is my
4: muse for most of those pieces so thanks again for having me
2: thank you all this conversation actually made my day a lot better i just love geeking out about spondylarthritis no matter what the subject matter so Thank you for that. Thank you, Rich, from the SAA, taking part, and of course, for AI Arthritis. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is at blog. That's B-E-I-N-G-C-H-A-R-I-S-B-L-O-G. And my blog itself is beingcaris.com B-E-I-N-G-C-H-A-R-I-S.com.
1: Wonderful. And Rich.
3: Yes. Well, I am also <laughs> so grateful for this opportunity and to AI Arthritis. And Tiffany, you have a wonderful voice for the community. I just love, I could sit and listen to you and Caris and Jennifer. You all bring such a unique voice and passion and smarts. So thank you for including me on. I feel honored. You can find Spondylitis Association America at Spondylitis.org. They're at Spondylitis on any kind of social media personal I'm rich a howard on everything <laughs> anything twitch reddit <laughs> facebook i'm on linkedin i'm always rich a howard and then um i just want to make a note that we just implemented this year or at the end of last year the same but we've added the t- the tagline we've added uh serving the spondylarthritis community so it's kind of a bridge, it's kind of a transition, it's a way to be inclusive with the entire community, but it's something that we just did this year and very timely for you guys to have this talk.
1: All right, awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. And and again, just a, a, a big thank you to you, uh, three for coming here and talking and thank you to everyone out there who tunes in and knows that we really need you to have a voice to come forward, give your perspectives, experience opinions on this topic, because only together can we truly change the stories of tomorrow. So thank you all for tuning in and um, let's continue this conversation.
0: Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI Arthritis news and events.